You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Introductions to, to books are always interesting to, to kind of get through because it's always kind of, kind of setting the scene. And especially when there's a familiar text, you're always kind of thinking to yourself, well, what am I going to do this time, right? Uh, if we've been in church for, for any amount of our lives, we've probably heard... Um, this read before, or if nothing else, we certainly know the details um, of the story, and uh, I just find it interesting because I, I have an 18-month-old daughter um, who regularly finds the most ordinary things just earth-shatteringly amazing. Um, so we might be walking through the park, and we might see a dog, and for me, that's not even, it's not even a second thought. It's just kind of, okay, you know. Uh, but for her, it's dog, 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 right? Number one, because she just figured out how to say dog. Um, but then also, two, because it's this amazing animal that has left, leapt off the pages of her book and become a reality for her, something that she can touch and feel and see and hear, right? She's experiencing that uh, on a whole other level. I can, I can bring her a plate with nothing but cauliflower on it, and she goes, ooh, Right? <laughs> You would think I was Wolfgang Puck in that moment, right? Uh, or Gordon Ramsay, any one of those famous chefs, right? For her, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Right? And for, for many of us, in any given day, there is very little awe, wonder, uh, or bewilderment. And my daughter, because of her age right now, lives in perpetual awe, wonder, and bewilderment. And so uh, my hope... And what I believe is Matthew's intent in this text uh, is that we might find ourselves experiencing a taste of what is my daughter's daily reality, a taste of awe, a taste of wonder, a taste of bewilderment uh, at what is taking place right in the middle of our human history. And so let's jump into the text and see um, what it has for us. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter 1 right? Now, the first 17 verses, right? What, what, what has it been? It's kind of the 30,000 foot view of how we got to Jesus, and now we're getting the, the details, those micro details about his birth, and this is what it says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we're tempted to just kind of read through those details, right, and pay very little attention, but let's recognize what's taking place here, right? It tells us that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, um, for us, that's an old and antiquated word that maybe we don't understand, but in Jewish culture, to be betrothed meant you were legally engaged, right? Legally engaged, meaning that your engagement, your betrothal, was something that was binding and would require divorce if it were to be broken. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's a little interesting in the sense that you were legally bound. It would require divorce for you to separate. But at the same time, sexual relations and living together under the same roof were not yet permitted. Right? So it's like this, think of it like this, Strange premarital purgatory, right? You're already dead to all other relationships, but you're still waiting for the good stuff. And so it tells us, right, 
that in this time of betrothal, so before they came together, I don't need to explain that, do I? Before they came together, Mary was found to be pregnant. She was found to be with child. Matthew explains that pregnancy by telling us that she is with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew describes Jesus' conception as a supernatural conception. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, so we, get, we start to understand why Joseph would divorce someone to whom he is only betrothed, right? Because engagement in Jewish culture was legally binding, any sexual relation outside of it was considered adultery, right? So naturally, since Mary is pregnant, what does Joseph assume? She, he assumes that she's been unfaithful to him, right? Um, the evidence is quite clear, Right? So listen, right? Joseph was the first person skeptical of a virgin conception. Your skepticism is nothing new, right? Joseph himself, skeptical of whatever explanation Mary might have had, just knows that she's pregnant. However, Joseph is a righteous man, right? So what does it tell us? It tells us that, that, that his righteousness leads him to want to spare Mary the disgrace of a public divorce and the legal proceedings for a suspected adulteress, right? So I, I love this because what we see, what, what God calls righteous is justice, but tempered by compassion, right? That's just a side note. That's for free. Keep reading. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, so as Joseph considered his, his situation, as he's thinking about this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the angel explains to Joseph that Mary has, in fact, not been unfaithful and that her child has been, again, supernaturally conceived. And he goes on to remind Joseph of his lineage, right? We talked last week about why the, the genealogy is so important, not only in the people that it brings to the surface who all have checkered pasts, but also because it roots Jesus in the line of David, right? Which was significant for the Jew because that was the line from which the Messiah would come. All right, so God reminds Joseph, you're the son of David. And he says, here's why that's important. Because the son that Mary will have will enter into your line if you marry her. Essentially, what's he saying? He's saying this child has been, been conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, and he is going to enter into this, to, to the line of David by your adoption, by you adopting him as your own, though he is not your own. And he's to name this son Jesus, right? Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. Because he brings with him salvation 
And what you'll notice is that Matthew's very clear that the salvation that Jesus comes to bring is not a political salvation from Roman rule, but rather a spiritual salvation by which His people will be saved from their sins. Keep reading, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew now introduces his first Old Testament fulfillment quotation. And this is significant because as we read through the book of Matthew over the next couple of months, what we will begin to see is that Matthew is primarily written for a Jewish audience. And so all of the cues that he is giving have that culture and that worldview in mind, right? So when he says things like Son of David, when he says Emmanuel, when he says God with us, when he says a direct quote from Isaiah, he's appealing to that mindset, to that culture, to that worldview. And so what does he say? God's presence with his people is coming in Jesus, right? Now, quoting from Isaiah would have been significant because it's a direct quotation of Jewish Scripture. So for them, this is the Word of God that is being quoted for them by Matthew, related now to Jesus, that God will be present with His people. And this is the theme, really, of the entire book of Matthew. It starts that way, right here, Emmanuel, God with us, and it ends in Matthew 28 with Jesus saying, what? And surely I am with you until the end of the age, right? God's presence with us in Jesus, that deity is imminent, that God has become tangible, that what was intangible is now tangible. And then it tells us that when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I said earlier that, uh, again, even, even after delving into some of these details, maybe this story is just nothing new for us. I don't know. For, for me, it's, you know, I'm, this is 31 Christmases in, so. And yet, what we're being drawn into, what we're being called to by this text is to a renewed sense of awe, a renewed sense of wonder, a renewed bewilderment at the scandalous nature of the incarnation, the taking upon himself of flesh of God himself. We're we're being called once again to marvel at the historical fact that God was made one of us. Like in the annals of human history, We're being called to be astounded that He would condescend to such a degree that He would not only assume human flesh, but that He would assume it in the most unassuming way possible. It's a lot of assumes. Did you get that? That He would come and not as a ruler or of exceedingly noble birth, but that He would come and be what is essentially the product of a teen out-of-wedlock birth. 
We're being called to sheer bewilderment at the marvelous grace of God in sending His Son to us to be one of us and to be with us. And not only that, but in His coming, save us from our sins. And not only that, but in His coming, He would then allow us to be called the people of God. That what was necessary for God's people to be saved, Jesus was more than willing to provide. And this is the call for every one of us this morning. If you're a Christian in the room, we never graduate from this wonder. Jesus, through the Word, is showing you what kind of God He is. And He is summoning you to wonder, to awe, and to bewilderment. The same is true, even if you're not a Christian in the room, that's what you're being summoned to, to see that He is unlike anything that you have ever seen, heard, known, or understood. But if you're anything like me, and, I, and I'm a Christian, I'll self-confess, right? If you're anything like me, you fail at this regularly, right? All wonder, bewilderment, they are all a distant feeling for me when it comes to the Christmas story. Why is that? I I think it could be a number of reasons. I'm just going to give three. Three because I think they're, they're probably most likely the top three. Number one is this. Maybe it's just sheer familiarity, right? I alluded to that earlier, that maybe we've heard the story so many times that it no longer holds any surprise, any delight for us. We know the details, we know the twists and the turns. It's like a familiar road, right, that's so ingrained in our memory that we don't even have to think to navigate it, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's busyness, right? Maybe we're just so caught up in all the cultural trappings of the Christmas season that we're unable to find an unhurried moment to truly reflect on what is, quote-unquote, the reason the season, right? The gifts to buy, the travel to schedule, the meals to coordinate, the decorations to put up, the cards to write, the events to attend, right? We've managed to turn what should be our most reflective season into our most reactive season. But here's the third one, and this one for me, is the most insidious and and also the one that I'm probably the most afraid of for myself. And let's just be really honest. Maybe the reason we aren't filled with awe, wonder, and bewilderment is because another God is more awesome and wonderful to us. And that God is not so imminent. It's not with us. And so we're spending the season striving to try and bring it closer when Jesus has already drawn near. If you're not, in a, Christian, if you're not a Christian in the room, then uh, you're likely not filled with all wonder and bewilderment by Jesus either. Uh, maybe bewilderment. Why is that? Again, I think there's a couple of reasons. It could be skepticism and doubt, right? Meaning I want to believe, but I can't because blank. 
Maybe it's a scientific doubt and skepticism. A virgin conception is impossible, right? Maybe it's a philosophical one, right? Jesus is an authoritarian killjoy out to rob me of all earthly joys. Or maybe it's sheer unbelief. I just, I don't want to believe. And yet at the same time, right, for all of us, Christian and non-Christian in the room, this text from Matthew becomes such a precious gift. Because in it, we're being given a remedy for each of those ailments. In it, we're being shown the Jesus, right? The Jesus, not our conception of Jesus, not the Jesus that we value him to be, right? Not like we're being shown the Jesus, what he is actually like. We're seeing Jesus in his highness, right? That he received a human body from his mother, but he received perfection from his biological father, his father in heaven, right? That he comes, that he is capital G God in the flesh, right? And so in that sense, yes, he has authority. In that sense, yes, he is cosmically important. In that sense, yes, he is great and mighty and worthy of the allegiance, not just of some peoples, but of all peoples. He is untouched by the sin of Adam. Because his father is in heaven. But at the same time, right, in contrast to that, we're seeing Jesus' lowliness. Right, that he would come and that he would not have a father and that he would be adopted. And not adopted by a king like Moses was, a pharaoh. But that he would come and would be adopted by a carpenter. That he would be born not in an inn. Not in a palace, but in the stable where the animals were. And that he would experience all of the awkwardness that is human flesh, right? That is the messiness of birth, that is the being swaddled, that is the being nursed at his mother's breast, that is the being carried and comforted and soothed when he cries. You see, it's Jesus' simultaneous highness and His simultaneous lowliness that in spite of familiarity should still produce awe, wonder, and bewilderment for us. It's His simultaneous highness and lowliness that instead of busyness captivates us in such a way that we are not only willing to, but are wanting to remove distractions from beholding Him. It's Jesus' simultaneous highness and lowliness that overcomes our doubt and skepticism and unbelief. Seriously. Who, when fabricating a story, right? The, here's, let me teach you how to lie, all right? When you want to lie about something, you make the lie believable. That's a good start, right? Like something that could actually happen in the realm of reality. If Matthew was trying to fabricate this story, do you think he would be like, hey, um, born, right, of a virgin? <laughs> Who does that? Who, when striving to present themselves as authoritarian, right, 
If Jesus is just coming to kill your joy and to make you subject to him, who, when striving to present themselves that way, enters into humanity with not only meek humility, clothed in the clothing of a peasant, but upon coming and being clothed in such a manner, then extends grace. That he would come so that the people of God might be saved from their sins. Who among us, right? Who among us does not want to be loved in spite of what you and the other person knows to be unlovable in you? That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what Jesus said, yes, I am high, but I will be made low in order that they might know me and in order that they might experience the tangible, real, bodily love of God in the fact that not only will I be made into the form of man, but I'll become obedient even to death. Brothers and sisters, if that does not produce awe in you, if that does not cause you to wonder or even some bewilderment, maybe you're asking the question, why? Why would God do this? And there's a, there's a serious issue there. Maybe we don't know that God has not only become imminent for us, but that he's become imminent to you. That he came and he came knowing the amount of hairs that would be on your head 2,000 and 16 years later. And that he came knowing every other scandalous detail of your life. And yet he is with you. And so the question is, right, if if awe, wonder, bewilderment is what we're being called to, how do, we, how do we cultivate that, right? Like, hopefully, spending time together this morning, worshiping God through song, reading about Him in His Word, having our hearts and minds stoked is a good start. But I think there's a few more things that we can do during this season that will help us in this endeavor. I think it really comes down to three things. We remove distractions, right? We remove distractions, things that would take our eyes off of this wondrous Jesus, this God who was intangible, who's now become tangible in Jesus the Son. Two, we reflect on that, right? In place of the distraction, we reflect on the wonderful, simultaneous highness and lowliness of Jesus. And it's in that that we discover the real Jesus. So if you're overly familiar with the story, right? Matthew reminds us that Jesus is God. That He is most high, made most low for you and for me. And that should be astounding to us. Jesus' highness and lowliness are deep wells of grace, the contents of which 
we will never exhaust or fail to find refreshment in. And so here's the way I think of it. If you're like me, you've read some story, for me it's Lord of the Rings, you've read some story multiple times and you've found great enjoyment in the rereading. Maybe you pick up a nuance or a detail that you didn't see the first time through. How much more should that be true of the greatest story told in all of human history? In fact, it is the story of all human history. And yet, the reality is that we tend to read a verse once and we go, okay, I read it, it's in my checklist, now I'm like 2% of the Bible read, so I'm on my way to that 100 number. Read it again. Read it again and read it again and then reflect upon what that means for you that God, most high, would be made most low for you. And that He is with you now by His Spirit. And that He will come again to be with you forever by His grace. If we truly reflect on it, then joy will come. So too will awe, so too will wonder, so too will bewilderment. If you're overly busy during this season, right? remember that Jesus had a world to save. And yet He regularly set aside time to commune with the Father. Jesus regularly removed Himself from distractions to reflect and to pray. Right? Jesus in the season of Advent, right, in us reflecting upon His coming, bids us to come to Him and find rest. Isn't it ironic that the most restful, the most rest-inducing thing that could ever happen happened, Right? In Jesus coming, taking upon flesh, doing what we couldn't do so that we might experience what we could not experience. Right? The most restful thing that could ever happen, essentially saying, your work is through, right? That in this season, we often spend being our most busy, our most exhausted. That really, right, December 31st, or really December 26th, I guess the day after Christmas, it's just kind of, oh, it's over, right? Now I've got to try to coax myself into, uh, into being excited about a new year. But Jesus, again, in this season, bids you to come to Him and find rest. Rest in the knowledge that you are fully approved, that by Him, right, you have been saved from your sins. And so make time. Make special time in your calendar and remove the unnecessary distractions. Literally, make an appointment in your calendar and keep it sacred like you would any other appointment. Sometimes we feel like we can't afford to remove distractions, but you can because they're just that. They're distractions. Don't use this sermon to not show up for Christmas dinner, okay? But that's important. If you're worshiping at another altar this season, right? Remember that Jesus was faithful in your place. That there's grace for that. But 
name it for what it is. It's idolatry. There is nothing so satisfying as the real Jesus. You see, if we're looking at Jesus and we're not finding satisfaction in Him, it's because we're looking at Him through lens that discolor Him. But when we go to the Word of God and we see who He really is and who He became for us, brothers and sisters, there's nothing so satisfying as that. There's nothing so satisfying as being told that you can rest. There's nothing so satisfying as being told that you are loved in spite of whatever horrific things may still reside in here. There's nothing so satisfying as knowing that the work is finished, as Jesus proclaims on the cross. There's nothing so satisfying as knowing that there is an inheritance that we can't lose. So even in all our striving for the one that we can, we can be released from that. There's nothing so satisfying as that. Those other gods, they may come near for a time. But Jesus has already come near. And He is bidding you now to draw near to Him. If you're a doubter or a skeptic, right? Jesus doesn't make you guess about Him. He comes down in human flesh, communicates Himself to us in a way that we can see, know, and understand Him. He's mysteriously unmysterious. There are a lot of things that you may have heard about Jesus, but in His Word and in His incarnation, Jesus refuses to be misconstrued, refuses to be misknown, refuses to be missed. He's high and holy, and He's meek and lowly. And He is both of those with you and for you so that you might be saved from your sins. Numbered among God's people. Perhaps if you were to investigate the real Jesus and not a or your cultural conception of Him, you might find your doubt, skepticism, and unbelief overcome. Ultimately, what makes this season so great is that our families and our dearest friends come near. We have these families and friends throughout the year, right? But often physical distance means that there's also some relational distance, right? I know I have a sister, but my sister lives in Arkansas. So I don't know about you, I don't go to Arkansas. Not for any particular reason other than it's there and not here. I know I have a sister. But it's when I'm in the room with her that I know and enjoy her presence in its fullness. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is how we not only know that we have a God, but how we can Enjoy the presence of that God in its fullness. Because in Him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. 
And this is why we celebrate the season of Advent, because He came to be with us. He is with us now by His Spirit, and we, He will come again to be with us forever. May we celebrate and long appropriately. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Uh, thank You for the opportunity, again, just to be gathered together as Your people. Thank You that what draws us into this room this morning is not affinity, um, it's not a class or a race or anything other that in our plurality we have been made into one body through the work of Jesus, God with us, who has saved us from our sins. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that as we come to the table for communion, Lord, that you would grant us rest at your table, that we would recline at table with you, that we would feast on the knowledge that your presence is ours because of Jesus, that he is high and holy, and yet he became meek and lowly so that we might enter in to this new kingdom filled with glory and in which the reign of the Prince of Peace endures forever. We love you. We praise you for all of these things. In Jesus' good name, amen.